give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. Uh, we'll begin by singing uh, Psalm 100 from the Scottish Psalter, and the tune is Old 100. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell, come ye before him and rejoice. We'll stand and sing the whole psalm. All people that on earth thanks that we can meet here tonight and we pray that uh, you would bless us as we do. Uh, we thank you that we can draw near, draw near to the throne of grace, the throne in which you sit and the throne from which you, ex you express your actions, your power, your love, your Various expressions of kindness, they all come uh, from you on your throne. It's good for us to recognize who you are, uh, the sovereign God, but also to realize that you are also the God who is kind and merciful and compassionate. And when we look at you, uh, we are to find what we see attractive. Obviously, we're not looking literally at you, but we are uh, looking spiritually at the great and gracious God. We were made to know you, and as we know, it's going to take a long time to get to know you fully. Indeed, the whole of eternity. But we thank you that you have made it straightforward for us to know you. We can see something of you in the creation, the universe. We can see your power there as you spoke it into existence and as you maintain it into in existence. But there are 
many aspects of who you are that creation doesn't really tell us. But we thank you that in your word we have information about Jesus. And as he himself said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And all these range of incidents recorded in the Gospels, uh, they highlight for us not merely details about the Savior himself, but also details about you. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the ones that we have in the Bible. We know, as John himself said, that if all of the things that Jesus did were to be recorded, uh, not even the whole world could contain the books that could be written. But we also have many in your word, and they are sufficient for us. And as we think about one of them tonight, we pray that you would help us not only to see it as a historical incident, but also to see it as something that's relevant for us now in the 21st century. And as we live in a very different world uh, from the kind of world in which Jesus lived when he was here on earth. And yet there were uh, similar issues to what he experienced as we experience. And therefore your word <clears throat> is always relevant and we pray you would help us to understand the passage that we shall read. We do come to you, Lord, at these uh, difficult times in our society where there's a lot of confusion and even at the very top in the government and perhaps we wouldn't have imagined that would have happened uh, even a short time ago but that's where we are now and we do pray for our rulers that you would uh, help them as they uh, wrestle with all the issues that are going on at present and we do pray for stability and for a sense of um, security, uh, which we seem to have lost. But we ask that you would uh, restore it to us as a country, indeed not just our country, but all the countries of the world, because we are living in a state of what seems to be global crisis, and we need your help. It would be good if our society were to acknowledge that and that they were to arrange uh, meetings where prayer was made to you, although we suspect that's not liable to happen. But still, we can pray, and we do pray, Lord, along with many others of your people, that you would come and bless our nation at this time and not only in temporal things, but also in spiritual things. We need a revival, a spiritual recovery, and only you can give that. So we pray, Lord, to hear what we're asking for and to answer our requests far above what we can imagine. Lord, we pray you remember us as a congregation. Bless each family represented here. Uh, remember those who are away from us at this time, or who are not present tonight, uh, that you would bless each one of them, and that you would remember us all for good. We commit ourselves to you for this coming week, for whatever happens in it, that you would lead us through it. Remember those in our congregation who have health issues at present, and we pray that you would bless any treatment that they are receiving. And we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, give to us uh, your abundant uh, blessing in every aspect of life. We don't deserve it, but we pray, Lord, you would provide it. 
Remember our denomination as well, and we commit it to you. And we ask you to bless each congregation as it meets. And also remember our seminary and bless all that goes on in connection with it. So, Lord, we pray you just remember us and enable us to understand the passage that we shall think about. And we just ask that you would work in our hearts as we go through this service. So be with us, we pray, and pardon our sins. For Christ's sake, amen. We'll sing again to God's praise, this time of Psalm 119. We'll sing Psalms, verses 137 to 144. Uh, the tune is, Before the Throne. O Lord, you are the righteous one. The statutes that you give are just. You lay down laws of righteousness entirely worthy of our trust. We'll sing this section. O Lord, you are the righteous one, the statutes that you give are just. Some verses from the Gospel of Luke and chapter 19, uh, from verse 45 down to verse 8 of chapter 20. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us... By what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? And if we, but if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And may God bless that reading.
We'll now sing from Psalm 69 in the Scottish Psalter and verses 7 to 14. June is Coles Hill. For I have borne reproach for thee, my face is hid with shame. To brethren strange, to mother's sons, an alien I became. Verses 7 to 14. For I have borne to the passage we read there from Luke chapter 19 and I'd like us just to think together about, about the, what Jesus um, did on, as described in that section of the Gospel of Luke. As no doubt we know, we're now in the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. And I suppose um, we might say that if someone knows that they have come to the last week of their life, uh, they might try and use it 
as a time of sorting out maybe something that they've done wrong. Uh, perhaps they did something and they would just like to rectify it. And yet, as we come to look at Jesus here, um, we actually see what he does is actually repeat something that he had done previously. Because this is the second time he cleansed the temple. He had done it three years before uh, at the start of his public ministry. And that's recorded for us in John chapter 2. Right here, as he comes to uh, the end of his life, he repeats it. And I suppose that in itself uh, should tell us that what he did is very important. I mean, obviously, if Jesus does something once, that's enough for us. But if he does something twice, then I assume we're meant to pay special attention to it. As we read um, Luke's account, uh, we might assume that everything is just happening at the same time. The prior incident to him <clears throat> cleansing the temple is him weeping over the city. And we might think at the start of verse 45 that it just followed immediately from verse 44. Time-wise, uh, that is. But <clears throat> as we look at other Gospels, uh, we can work out that there's actually a different day. The weeping over Jerusalem, well, it occurred on Palm Sunday, as we call it. But this incident here of um, clearing the temple, it took place on the Monday. And the subsequent incident that we read at the start of chapter 20 which Luke just refers to as on one day he did this. Uh, we know from the Gospel of Matthew that it occurred on the Tuesday. So there's a process of time uh, taking place here. But anyway, we have to suppose ask ourselves, why did Luke put the cleansing of the temple next to him weeping over the city? Because there are other things that he could have placed there. He didn't have to follow the account of him weeping with the account of him clearing the temple. But he did. So he must want us to, somewhere or other, uh, connect it. And it's easy, in a sense, to see that Jesus had great compassion for this city. His emotions were moved and copious tears poured out. And he was obviously earnest in his sense of sorrow as he looked at the city and contemplated what was going to happen to it in 40 years' time, when the Romans would destroy it. But is that the only kind of thing that Jesus gets energetic about? And we can see that it's not. So, in addition to him being um, very emotionally involved in the future of the city, he's also emotionally involved in what goes on in the temple, the place where God was to be worshipped. 
He had a passion for the lost, and he had a passion for divine worship. And it's easy for us, perhaps, to be comforted by the first, knowing that Jesus cared for the lost. But what does he think of worship? Because obviously here, he was. Now, the last week of Jesus' life, as we know, was Passover time. And this was a very important time of year uh, to top up the temple treasury. They reckon, historians tell us, that over a million visitors will be in the city. And all of them will be there for the same reason. To celebrate their, great, their ancestors' great deliverance uh, from Egypt. When God showed his great power with all the, the ten plagues and also with opening up the Red Sea so they could travel through it safely and so on. And although they had not been physically there, these people who were currently going to the temple, they were connected to it. It was their forefathers that had experienced it and that great Passover had given them their identity and it was a very important celebration for them. So they all went up eagerly to the Passover and of course as they're there day by day they have to offer uh, different amounts of um, money. Sometimes they have to buy personal sacrifices. They wouldn't have just uh, waited for the Passover to purchase something, but they themselves as individuals would want to express their devotion to God and perhaps give him a burnt offering, or they might want as families to come together before God, and the sacrifice that was arranged for that was a peace offering, and they might want to confess their sins. And for that, they might want to offer a sin offering and so on. And therefore, they would need several sacrifices. And the temple authorities, well, you get the impression that they were making sure that their um, <coughs> resources uh, were suitably uh, <coughs> Arranged, and that people paid prices for the sacrifices that were high above what they should have charged. And Jesus, well, he knows what's going on. I read quite a clever quotation about what was happening here. Uh, Warren Wearsby said about these temple rulers, that instead of praying for the people, the priests were praying on the people. And that kind of just summarizes it up, doesn't it? So I would like us to uh, think for a short time about Jesus clearing the temple. Um, What does he do as he does this? And then secondly, just to look at these actions of Jesus and ask ourselves, what do they say to us? I mean, what difference does it make to us here and at this particular time that Jesus there about 30 AD chased some people out of the temple? And then after that, just a couple of thoughts on this debate he had there with the leaders about the baptism of John the Baptist. Again, which we might think, well, what's 
that got to do uh, with us. So anyway, um, Jesus clearing the temple. What can we uh, identify from this particular uh, incident? Well, one thing that we can see from it is that Jesus claims deity. Because he says there in verse 46, (coughs) my house. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus could have said to the people, God's house shall be a house of prayer. And, of course, if he had said that, everybody present would have nodded their heads. Yes, it is God's house. But here's Jesus as he quotes this uh, verse from Isaiah. And he says, it's my house. So he's claiming to be deity. It belongs to me. Now, you have to try and picture that. There's all the rulers, the religious leaders of Israel. And and no doubt they are there somewhere around. Because that's the kind of place they would frequent. And they heard this man making this assertion. My house. And who was speaking to them? The God who disapproved. I mean, that is kind of a bit earth-shaking, isn't it? The God who disapproved has come to his temple. Quite solemn, really. But anyway, that's one point that we can deduce from this incident. A second um, detail that's fairly obvious from these verses, 45 and 46, is that the people recognize his authority. Put it this way, don't mean to be flippant, but if somebody called, I don't know, Simon from Nazareth in the north of the country, just happened to come down to the temple and, and made a, an assertion, this is my house. How would the people have responded to that? Well, they would have ignored him, wouldn't they? They would probably have arrested him. Who do you think you are? Coming here and telling us this is your house. But that's not what the people in the temple did, was it? They actually submitted to Jesus. When he drove them out, they went out. And so we could say that they recognized his authority. But in the recognition of their authority, there's something missing. Because it's obvious that his expression of authority is that he disapproves. And we would expect them, surely, to say to him, well, we're very sorry we've done this. But they didn't know sign of that. So they recognized his authority with no confession of repentance. And, of course, the temple was a very suitable place for repentance. For here they were, they were not penitent, despite the fact 
their sin had been identified. So that's the second thing we can identify. A third thing we could notice from verse 45 and verse 46 is what is the main purpose of the temple? What went on in the temple? Well, there was preaching. I mean, Jesus preaches in the temple. We can see that in verse 47. He was teaching daily there. But he wouldn't be the only one. There would be other people teaching in the temple. Does Jesus identify preaching as the main outcome? Or how about rituals? There would be loads of rituals taking place in the temple. There would be a constant stream of people queuing up to offer sacrifices. And all these rituals had been stipulated by God. Was participating in a ritual the key issue of the temple that Jesus identified? The temple was also a place of fellowship. That's where all the people got together. As I mentioned at the start, there could be a million of them. And the temple was very big. I have no idea how many people it could hold, but it was certainly capable of holding a very large number. And they would all be up there having fellowship together. Does Jesus indicate that that is the main goal of the temple. Well, I don't think he does. I don't think he says that the main goal is preaching or the main goal is participating in the rituals or the main goal is having fellowship. Instead, he states quite strongly that the main goal is prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer, for you have made it a den of robbers. If the preaching doesn't lead to prayer, what good is the preaching? If the rituals don't lead to prayer, what benefit were the rituals? If the fellowship didn't lead to prayer. What benefit was the fellowship? That seems, isn't it, to be what Jesus is saying. My house, his property, is designed to be a place of prayer. And everything else in it contributes to that. That's the third thing. He claimed deity. It was his house. The people working there recognized his authority but didn't confess their sinfulness. And he identified the priority of prayer. A a fourth thing we can um, see there is, already mentioned it, It's the second time he had cleansed the temple. Three years had passed since the first time. But he had been to the temple numerous times during that three years. And on each occasion when he went, these people were doing what he disapproved of. It wasn't just on the occasion when he first cleared it that they were doing it. 
nor was it just on the occasion when he cleared it the second time that they were doing it. But in between they were doing it. And we might put it this way. Here are, here are the, the sellers there in the temple. And six months after the first clearing, they see Jesus coming. And they might have said, I wonder, will he clear us this time? But he didn't. A year later after that, he'd be in the temple again. And they might see him coming. And they might say, will he clear us out? And he doesn't. I wonder what we would deduce if we saw that. Well, I know what I would deduce. I would assume he had changed his mind. And that somewhere or other, the other he had, just, he had um, concluded that his clearing of the temple, well, it hadn't worked. Because here they are, back in it. But then... On the final week of his life, they discover he hasn't changed his mind. That he still thinks they shouldn't be there in the temple. And I think Luke is telling us to think about that. That Jesus thinks the same thing three years later as he had done on the first occasion. And his silence indicated nothing. His silence about that particular point indicated nothing. It was dangerous for them to have assumed he had changed his mind if they had assumed that. Because they discovered that he hadn't. That's the first thing we can see. He called it his house. He's claiming deity. The people there recognized his authority but didn't confess their wrong action. He identified prayer as the outcome that he wanted from attending his house. And the passing of time hadn't changed his assessment. And there's a fifth thing we can think about. That is that despite his disapproval, he continued to attend. That he was there. And of course, there's a wonderful description of his preaching there at the end of verse 48. That the people, all the people, were hanging on his words. When I read that, I thought that uh, maybe the people that had translated this were getting carried away. Because other versions just say that there was a kind of full acceptance. But there's something about hanging on his words that, that creates a wonderful picture of their eager anticipation of what he's going to say. And when I looked it up, I discovered that the word itself, translated hanging, means hanging. They were hanging on his words. Isn't that marvelous? In the place where his authority had been rejected, we might say, by the resumption of the wrong use of the temple, he still went there. And as somebody else said about his preaching, never man speak like this man.
a challenge, isn't it? Hanging on to his words. It kind of means that they were clinging to them. Desperate not to let them go. So these are the five things. He claimed to be divine. The people recognized his authority but didn't confess their flaws. He indicated that prayer was what he wanted in the temple. Although he had three years had passed since he had done the first clearing and the people had resumed their wrong action, he didn't change his mind. And yet he went there and said beautiful things. That leads us to the second thing, applications for ourselves. What's all that got to do with us? Well, I've got some applications. The first one is this. Do we live in the church as if it is Christ's church? I mean, the problem with the temple people was they didn't accept it was his temple. But do we live in a church as if it is Christ's church? Or do we follow the people that we're buying and selling and saying we can do what we like in it? How do we know that we are treating it as Christ's church? Well, the answer is fairly simple. We just do what he's commanded. Things that he hasn't commanded, we don't do. If we accept that the church is his church, he's the one with the authority. He's the one that makes the rules. He's the one we have to obey. And I think that's a challenging question. Do I live in a church as if it is Christ's church? Do you live in a church as if it is Christ's church? A second um, application we might say is Do we worry that Jesus might empty a church? Because he was prepared to empty the temple of some of the things that were going on. How can we think about this? We'll take the seven churches of Asia. We know about them there in the book of Revelation. And we could say that Jesus came to them in a similar manner as to how he came to the temple. And he said to these seven churches, didn't he? I can take your candlestick away. Two of them. I suspect we would have Applauded very highly. Church in Ephesus. And yet Jesus said about them, they had lost their first love. Church in Sardis. It had a name that was alive. But Jesus said, You're dead. What happened to the churches in Ephesus and and Sardis? Well, Jesus took their candlestick away. He emptied them. It's quite solemn, isn't it? Jesus can empty churches. 
he does it because of what they didn't do. The people in Ephesus might not have thought it mattered too much that they had lost their first love. But it mattered to Jesus. And the people in Sardis might not have married too much that they only had a name. But Jesus did. And we have to confess, haven't we? He emptied them. There's a lot of that going on in Britain today. Thirdly, what is Jesus looking for in worship? Think of the description of the early church in Acts 2 and 42. A wonderful picture. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Imagine taking out the last item. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. What would that say? If prayers were not part of what they were devoted to. Of course, the only person that knows we're praying is Jesus. For everybody else, prayer is invisible. But here in this instant in the temple, Jesus does say, doesn't he, that the invisible activity is a credible activity. My church shall be a house of prayer. Fourth application is that Jesus does not always judge. Already mentioned how he kind of tolerated their wrong action for three years. Did nothing about it. He did it at the start of his public ministry and for the next three years he went up to the temple and just saw them buying and selling. And it is possible, isn't it, that that we might be tempted just to assume that because he does nothing, that he doesn't mind. But he does tell us in this incident that he did mind. And that his... Um, refusal to repeat the action for three years didn't mean that he didn't care. And we can never assume that just because Jesus does nothing that he doesn't mind. Because he does. He gives space for repentance. Three years is a long time. If we multiply it up by the number of days that these people have been in the temple, over a thousand, a thousand days to get it right. But they didn't. First thing we can learn is that Jesus has a desire to teach. 
already thought about how all the people there were hanging on his words. Why was he sent by the Father? We thought about that this morning. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus still loves to teach. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will declare your praise. He still has the same abilities to get right to our hearts, to our minds. And I'm sure he was very pleased on that occasion to see all the people in the temple hanging on his words. The words of eternal life. And I'm sure he would be delighted to see that happening still as he by his spirit speaks his word. And the sixth application, the last one, division is inevitable. And that seems to be the case always with Jesus. And we see the division here between the chief priests and the people. The chief priests, well, they were seeking to destroy him. And they didn't find anything. And it's an imperfect tense there. So it means they were repeatedly searching. And they couldn't find anything condemn him they just opposed him more and more and were desperate to find some reason not to listen to him in contrast as we mentioned earlier there were those who hung in his words a division and I suppose that's the point of this story that Luke is telling us here On whose side are we? The ones that want to oppose what he wanted or the ones that were delighted to hear what he had to say. So these applications. Do we live in the church as if it's Christ's church? Do we worry that Jesus might empty a church? What is Jesus looking for in worship? What does he want from us? Prayer, of course, is speaking to him. Doesn't always judge immediately. We know that. He wants us to listen to his teaching. And division is inevitable. Then very briefly, this incident of challenge there in chapter 20 and verses 1 to 8. The rulers, again, they're desperate to get him and they think they've got a reason to get him. All to do with authority. They've made a decision and their decision was, been around for a long time, that anyone who wants to be a rabbi has to get their permission to be one. And Jesus obviously had not asked their permission for him to be a teacher. And therefore they come to him and ask him in verse 2, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now we might think that Jesus was being rude and not answering their question. But he's not being rude. He's just refusing to acknowledge that they've got any authority. And instead of them asking the questions in his house, because this takes place in the temple, as we can see from verse 1, In his house, 
He's got the authority. And therefore, he asks them a question. And the question is uh, one that indicates that he's the wonderful counsellor. Who knows what to say at every moment? I mean, Jesus was never baffled by anyone that's asked him anything. And here he just asks them to answer a simple question. What's the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And, of course, Jesus knew that these rulers didn't think it came from either. They didn't think it came from heaven, and they didn't think it came from man because they hadn't given it the authority. And therefore they refused to answer the question. So they had to confess they didn't know. And then Jesus says to them, I just really want to stop with this. But then Jesus says to them, and there's something very solemn about it. There in verse 8, the silence of Jesus. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Of course, he's already told them, hasn't he? It's my house. But they wouldn't listen. And instead they went around trying to find some way of getting rid of his authority. And his response there in the last week of his life is to be silent. I mean, there is something serious about that, isn't there? Something solemn. People that Jesus had warned and now he's got nothing to say to them. A serious state to be in. So we thought about Jesus clearing the temple. An historical incident from long ago that I suspect speaks very powerfully to us in our lives today. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that as you indicated in the book of Revelation that you walk among the churches and that you're all seen eye sees everything. You see what we do outwardly. You see what we do inwardly. We are being scrutinized by you. Not once in a while, but all the time. You don't Look at us in order to be nosy. You look at us to see if there's reality. Lord, reality comes from yourself. And we pray that you would make us real. And if we are real, to make us more real to make us more devoted. It's easy to look round and imagine that we see someone less devoted than we are. But the real question is, are we as devoted as you want us to be? To be wholehearted. To become, as your words seem to indicate, people who delight in prayer. Lord, help us to be prayer warriors.
who take hold of heaven and in response to our eagerness, the heaven responds with great answers. Lord, do it, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing in conclusion from Psalm 34 and sing Psalms. We'll sing verses 12 to 16. The tune is St. Lawrence. Does anyone delight in life and long to see good days and keep your tongue from evil speech, your lip from lying ways? We'll stand and sing these verses. Does anyone delight in life and long to see Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.